Hey, hey, welcome to The Weekly, where we connect what happened on our weekend services to your real life lived Monday through Friday. I get to be one of your hosts, Thomas Milburn, with my friend Pasta J. What's up, Thomas? Pasta J is a term of endearment we have for Pastor J. Ewing on the Erie campus. It's so good to be with you, man, on this Tuesday. How's life today? Life's pretty good. How amazing is it that fall is upon us and our pumpkin spice lattes are have arrived? Almost, man. <laughs> almost. For all those who are drinking a pumpkin spice latte, cheers to you. Cheers. We got a great show today. We're going to be able to talk about some of the questions that came in to the weekly at calvarybible.com. You're able to email those in after the services, and we'll take the top three or four that come in each week, as well as a dialogue a little bit more about the practical nature of Sunday's message and how we live it out. Um, but first, before we do that, Jay, would you tell us what's coming up this weekend if you're new to the community at Calvary that you're not going to want to miss? Yeah, Starting Point is a great way to start your journey here at Calvary. It's a, on all three campuses. In fact, speaking of Pasta Jays, one of those campuses has Pasta Jays catered historically at their starting points. What? But, That's like your favorite uh, restaurant. Oh, man. It is my favorite restaurant. One of my favorite restaurants, I should say. So anyways, if you're new to Calvary and want to jump in and hear who we are, what we've been doing, what God's been doing actually for the last 130 years, we would love to have you there. It's calvarybible.com slash starting point. All three campuses this Sunday. You don't want to miss out. All right, man. All right, where do I get more information about that? Calvarybible.com slash starting point. Beautiful. Yeah. Did I miss that the first time? I don't know. Maybe you did, and I missed it. <laughs> or you just not listening. Anyways, no. we, we're just so thankful for what Calvary's doing. And if you're new to the podcast, new to Calvary, definitely check out um, Starting Point. That's enough said about Starting Point, isn't it? Yeah, enough said. All right. Okay. So this week was uh, a team teach that Pastor Tom and I did together. Uh, around uh, a really important chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 10, where we meet a man named Cornelius, and, and Peter is sent to him to be a witness of the gospel, to bring a message of salvation to him and his whole household. No and so we got a bunch of questions um, around those two characters. Yeah, we did. In fact, um, let's just sort of set up what those questions were around. I personally was super interested in this character, Cornelius. I was super interested in last week in the Ethiopian um, I think it's when we get through these texts and they don't have names, but they have titles. I think it's like weird that we don't know their names. Does that make sense to you? I don't know. I think it helps make a connection with a broader group of people. Oh, that's interesting insight. But anyways, here's what Tom said on Sunday about who Cornelius was and is. Ten. What we know immediately is he's outside of the the family of Israel. And not only is he not a Jew, he's an occupying force in the Roman army. He is a centurion. So the Roman army had a legion of soldiers, which was 6,000, um, a cohort of soldiers, which was 600. And then for every cohort, there were six centurions who were responsible for 100 men. That's Cornelius. So t Tom set us up here with this guy, Cornelius. He's a centurion. Last week, we didn't get the name of the Ethiopian. So just a clarifying point, like what is a centurion and why does it matter in the text, Thomas? Well, so Cornelius being a centurion is a commander, as Tom said, of a group of men, 100 men probably, um, member of the Italian cohort uh, where there's probably 600 men under the command of six centurions. And they are 
up there in Caesarea, which is kind of the occupying headquarters of the Roman rule of the Judean area. It's kind of like the police headquarters, so to speak. And he's said to be a God-fearer. And one of the questions that we had this week, at least the theme of it, was what does it really mean to be a God-fearer, and how does that please God? Yeah, that's a really great question. Like, when, when we read about Cornelius, we find that he's doing some things that are different than what we expect someone from Italy, someone in the occupying force to do while in this religious area or this foreign land. So the two things he's doing is he is praying. This is the, the God of Israel, and he's giving alms, which is kind of charity to the poor. So those are two characteristics of the practical faith of Judaism, which he recognizes the God of Israel, but he hasn't become a full-on convert. So he's what we would call a proselyte. So if, if he wanted to become a full convert to Judaism, he would have to go through first and foremost circumcision and then several other ritual cleansings to bring him into that family. So when he's said to be a God-fearer, it means he recognizes the God of Israel as God and he participates to some degree in the community's activities of prayer and almsgiving charities, but he hasn't converted to Judaism yet. So he's still seen very much as a Gentile and outsider. So one of the questions that came in this weekend cited Romans 3, which is uh, a letter written by Paul uh, explaining that no one is righteous, not one. Someone like Cornelius, how is he? They're In the Ethiopian, they're both seekers. So explain how Paul thinks that no one can seek God, and then we read in Acts that Cornelius and Ethiopian this Ethiopian are seeking God. Yeah, so what we said two weeks ago, and we echoed again last week, and we'll talk about again in the coming weeks, is that God is the initiator of faith. And so when we see people who are seeking after God based on the light or revelation they have of God, that could perhaps be from general revelation, just seeing the created order and wanting to give thanks to God and recognize Him as God— or simply having maybe a little bit more known about him as the God of Israel, the living God, uh, they, their response to those things is God-initiated, that the Holy Spirit has to be the one who convicts us of our sin, is convincing us of our need for a Savior. And so what we see is that God-initiating work is happening in the Ethiopian. God's initiating work is happening with Cornelius. We aren't the self-generators of that seeking. Yeah, is it helpful that like when the reformers called this, they called it the common grace of man and man, I guess the world that there was places in the world and places in story and time where God was just generous enough to give them even the slightest indication that he existed, right? Yeah, and we'll see that very clearly this next week as we're in Acts 14. But it's our response. Like We have a participation in this so that God reveals, God initiates, and we have to respond. And so what we see in Cornelius is, as a God-fearer, he's responding to the light that he knows. Right. So like when we talk about Cornelius and this sort of his character or his character development in the story, we find that um, Peter is very hesitant to go to such a person like Cornelius, a centurion. Is it because, like, Cornelius is the occupying force, or what? what's happening in the text that you've seen over the last week in your study, preparation, that makes Peter so hesitant? Well, I think the text is pretty clear on what the main objective here is to get some sort of prejudice out of Peter. And that prejudice 
is coincided with a racial prejudice against Gentiles. So remember, Jews had just divided the world into two parts. It's either you're Jew or you're Gentile. You're in or you're out. You're in or you're out. And a lot of people try to do that with their own life. You know, they assume that they're the in group, wherever that is, and everyone who doesn't think, believe, whatever, they're on the out group. So, so Peter definitely has a prejudice against Gentiles, and that's connected with the foods they eat, the foods that are in their homes, um, because there are these uh, laws from Leviticus chapter 11 of what's considered kosher, what's clean and unclean, what's common and what is detestable. And so Peter has to see this vision from God three times about these foods, these animals of all creatures. I mean, you see a disperse of like the Genesis story here again of all creatures being made clean by God. And so then God's calling him to say, what I have made clean, don't call unclean any longer. And it's the big connection with Cornelius being a Gentile, uh, someone that you would often see as not part of the family and making you unclean if you ever went into his house or you'd never share a meal with him. God is making clean that salvation is for all people. And Peter, you have to recognize that because I'm about to send you, I'm going to send you to Cornelius's house, a place that you think is unclean, to bring a message of salvation to. And also, for the first time in his life, Peter is allowed to eat bacon. True. I, 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 wonder, I don't know if Peter actually ate bacon. Do you think he would... Do you think he went and ate bacon after that? I don't know. He went to Cornelius's house, and there would have been very unclean type of foods there. And we see that because of this moment in Peter's life and his these three visions from God, these three moments, that the, the church now has to wrestle with what to do with it, right? Like on the larger scale. Yeah, it'll be interesting. That'll be one of the uh, top 10 questions you can ask Peter when you see him in heaven. <laughs> But no, like it. So the main point of the text is then no partiality. That's right. right. So and and that speaks specifically to racial prejudice. There's another layer here where Peter could also hold or harbor some sort of prejudice towards Cornelius, and that is because of who Cornelius is, and that's what Tom was unpacking in the beginning that he is a Roman centurion. So being in Caesarea, that's kind of the the capital area of their their base where they would put out soldiers who were the local law enforcement. And Cornelius would oversee that. And that was unjust often as an occupying force in the promised land. And so there's kind of, there's two dynamics here where Peter can harbor some sort of prejudice towards Cornelius. One, he's a Gentile, and that's the main crux of the text. But secondly, that he is the law enforcement um, of of his country. And so the two strikes against Cornelius is that he's not the offspring of the promised family, Abraham, and he's an occupier of the promised land that was given to the family. And here Peter's eyes are wide open, and he says, truly understand. I truly understand. Not that it was false and now it's become true, but how true it is that God's heart is for all people. Man, if a text isn't about today, I don't know what text is, right? Because this speaks, This is like, I mean, alarm bells are going off in my head like, this speaks to today, 2020, what's happening in America. I, yeah, absolutely. And this is why, as a Christian, um, I love my Bible. And I, and I really want you to love your Bible if you're listening. Because the Bible is not some archaic book that is irrelevant to today. That you open it and you think, gosh, was this written last week? Was this headline news on major newspapers? Um, is, this, is this so important for the family here at Calvary as well? As we experience... Um, nationally, this unrest racially. And it, it's a deal. You know, I remember being in Southern California. Have you ever been to Southern California? 
I like Southern California. I like visiting Southern California. Amen, man. Amen. Visiting Southern California is the best because then you get to be on the beach, hang out, eat good foods. And then go home eventually and sleep in your own bed outside of California. With no traffic. No traffic. All right. So there I'm in Southern California with a lot of traffic. And I was in this home building industry and I was a foreman for a couple of different crews that we were in structural and architectural concrete. So we're building foundations on multi-million dollar homes. And the crews that I would work with were guys from South America. And, you know, my my politically correct boulderite education that I got was to go down there and just assume everyone's Hispanic. And so I jumped down there and had really no understanding of the racial tensions between those who have immigrated to the States and those who are white in Southern California. And as we were on the job sites, that became increasingly obvious that there was some tension, especially when we, I referred to them as Hispanics and the guys that are just so kind to me, they're like, we're not Hispanic. You know, I'm, I'm Colombian, I'm Guatemalan, I'm Mexican. And they really want me to understand their diversity of where they're from, not just, you know, just group them into a Hispanic group, you know, Central, South America, doesn't matter. And so understanding that and working with them and really um, asking my questions and, and loving on them and them loving on me, got to know their families. And it was just this really great experience. And I remember one day there was a tradesman that came on the job site. I don't know if he was an electrician or a plumber. And as I was working with the crew, he called across from the, the job site, hey, Jose, come here. And I replied to him, his name's not Jose, this is Ruben. And his response was, they're all Jose. Wow. And I, I turned to the guys in kind of disbelief, like, what, what is happening right now? And they said, yeah, we've worked with him before. He just calls everybody Jose. And so we did, I went to him and talked to him, like, that's just not appropriate. Like, that doesn't have, has no place here on this job site. And I can find another tradesman. Thanks for coming. And it, it's like, there's no room for that in the job site, right. let alone, let alone the family of God. And so here in, the, in this Bible, we, we have clear texts like this in Acts 10 that show God's heart for people, why the lives of people who are made in the image of God that he desires to bring into the family of God through the salvation that's offered through his son, Jesus Christ. And if there's any harboring of prejudice towards a group of people, a community of people, a party of people, we have to just let God do that hard work in us and get it out, get it out of us. Because we're going to be called to be sent to many that they would come to know faith. And that's like one of the most beautiful things about seeing and experience, even in my own life, going to the mission field and seeing the nations and seeing how God is playing his story out in all these tribes, tongues, languages, right? Yeah. And I think I'm so glad Tom brought up Revelation where he talks about here's the future picture. Right. Where you have the diversity of tribe and tongue, young and old, socioeconomic class, and they come to, into the family of God. And it's often portrayed as here's this time when the lion will lay down with the lamb, which is a cool picture of a lion who's an aggressor and a lamb who's prey, and there's no fear between them. But that's just a, a glimpse of what that will mean for all of us, that at the Lord's table, we will sit um, men and women, young and old, black and white, and have no fear of one another. That's so true. Okay, so I was 19 years old, and on my one of my first mission trips, and I was in Hanoi, Vietnam, and I got invited to participate in an international church. And so I'm thinking, oh, we're just going to go to the house. I mean, my, my worldview was so limited, right? And we end up at this hotel lobby, and I walk in the doors, and there's thousands of individuals in Hanoi, Vietnam, gathering to worship Jesus. And 
they're from every tongue tribe. They're all the expats from every, every around the world. And we sung songs in languages I didn't even recognize. So we would sing in English or we would sing in Mandarin. I mean, it was just a beautiful moment. And at 19, I realized that God was doing something already in the world that I would had no clue about. And that, yes, I experienced what that Revelation passage experienced. It was the unity of believers in a dark, dark world, uh, a bright light. It was beautiful. You know, I, here's a plug for our, our missions group here at Calvary. At some point, international travel is going to be back. Yeah. Um, and our partnerships in Brazil and Nicaragua and Haiti will be back online. And it's our encouragement from the mission team that people at Calvary would experience an international experience, that they would join the, the trip going down the Amazon, that they would go down to Nicaragua and work with those um, doctors who are working with people who are, are trafficked, uh, to go to Haiti and work in the seminaries and the local churches and have that international experience. I, was just, I mean, I remember being with Dr. Seitz in Brazil and just walking into a church of 3,000, all worshiping God in a language that I didn't understand or being with Dr. Baker in, in Haiti and seeing hundreds and hundreds of Haitians worshiping God, or those who've been down in Nicaragua with Dr. Horner and, and working with uh, women and young children who are in the midst of being trafficked and them turning to the Lord. It's just right. this amazing growth of saying, God is so much bigger than the God that I, I, I think that he is here in just Erie, Colorado. Yeah, and there's some practical ways, even if you don't jump into a, a missions trip in the next year or two, to go and do a Google search of like what are some organizations around that are participating or what are some statistics of Christians in the world? I mean, it's right there. I mean, one of the most trusted resources is the Voice of the Martyrs, which is if you don't get their monthly newsletter, you've got to get their monthly newsletter. It tells you what God's doing in the world, and there's some amazing stories unfolding. And I know you and I have young kids, and one of the things that I've seen with our kids even is – uh, either doing one of two things. One, sponsoring children through know, like compassion. I know where you're going. Yeah, totally. It, you know, it gets the globe out and they say, okay, where, where does my sponsored kiddo live? Right. Uh, our newest is with our girls, a girl named Francia. And so we get to go to Haiti and, and say, hey, this is where she's at. And we talk to, um, about the country and its politics and we follow it in the news. And it gives them a little bit of a global context because they're sponsoring a kiddo. And then secondly, I think it's it's also really important to recognize that there's a huge international population, even in Boulder, Colorado, there is. with Horizons International, and working with uh, George Husney, with students coming in from all over the world to study at the University of Colorado. There's opportunities to bring international students into your home and share experiences of what it means to be American, because they want to see that. They want to see what an American Thanksgiving looks like. Right. And then an opportunity for you to rub shoulders and ask, you know, what 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 does life look like back where they're coming from and, and what sorts of things um, do they know and can enlighten you about? Yeah. And there's also Chuck and Joy Gertzen who are working with international students at CU. And so if you're interested in that, you can email the weekly and we would love to connect you to those ministries and what God's doing. And guess what? One of the coolest things I ever learned in compassion, Thomas, is that kids, no matter what their language or nationality is, draw the same pictures. Yes. sunshines, stick figures, slides, and rainbows. And it's a wonderful expression of that God um, created all of us in his image, and we all express in different ways uh, what he's doing in the world. All right, so before we move on to the next point, let's just make it really clear. Like, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we want to get into our hearts. That's right. So that he can get out of our hearts the things that don't belong in the family of God. And this is one of those texts. There are so many texts like this in the scriptures, but this is one of those texts that you should know and be familiar with that's a colorful illustration and story of an individual who has to get some of these things surfaced so he's known about them and then get them out so that he can be used as an instrument. And these are those texts that you put in. It's like These are the charters of the Christian faith to continue to work towards reconciliation for all things. You don't have to go find a man-made charter or some organization to convince you that the lives of other people matter. You go to the gospel of Jesus Christ and let it work in you and let it work out of you the things that do not belong in the family of God. Oh, man, that is so well said. And then also, this is a great text to learn how to present the gospel. I mean, we haven't talked about this on the side yet, but um, the end of chapter 10 Peter clearly articulates the gospel. And so if you're confused about what do I say when someone asks me what I believe, this is another text you you find a really great example, right? Yeah, he describes who is Jesus, what is salvation, and really how to respond. So that's, that's a great question that was asked this week on the weekly was why does Peter have to go to Cornelius? And I don't really know the answer to why Peter has to go, except there's kind of a pattern that we see connected between this story with the centurion and a story that we see in the book of Luke with the centurion, Luke chapter 7. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to slow down. I'm, I'm super interested. So you're saying that Luke, writing both books, has some parallels to his books. Yes, it's a good reminder, Jay. So Luke is the author of both the gospel of, Je- of, Je- of Jesus Christ and the, the gospel of Luke. Right. And then also the, the continued works of Jesus Christ through the church and the Holy Spirit in Acts. I think I said that correctly. Yeah, yeah. They're volume one and volume two, basically. Yes. And they, they actually, I mean, some people will say they make a chiastic structure, which is these parallels between the two stories of what Jesus did and what he began to do and teach and then what he continued to do with the church. And so in Acts chapter 7, we actually see a story where Jesus is called to go to the house of a centurion, chapter 7, verse 1, and heal this gentleman in Uh, Capernaum. And what he sees there is a man of great faith. So what you see here is maybe not even a God-fearer yet, but someone who knows that Jesus has authority and is oriented enough to say, okay, Jesus doesn't even have to come to my house. I'm not worthy of him coming to my house. He can just say the words. And Jesus is so impressed that this centurion, a man outside of the Jewish faith, has more faith than he's even seen amongst his his Jewish brothers. Yeah, so it's sort of a, a warning to his Jewish brothers, right, too. It is. I think, I think it's this, you know, you use examples of people um, that kind of get under your skin to show you what you should be. Yeah. It's a motivator. It is definitely a big motivator. <laughs> My mom would often tell me, how come you can't be more like Johnny? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But well, the main, I think the other reason is um, the gospel comes to us. Jesus had to come to us. Right. We didn't go to him. And so the gospel message comes as Jesus was first and foremost sent. And then he tells us in John chapter 20, 21, Jesus said to the the disciples, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so part of being a Christian is seeing yourself as the sent one, that we're constantly being sent, that people don't have to come figure it out, but the God in his initiating work to make a God seeker is going to send us to them with a message. Yeah, so one of the best practices I would know in our preparing a heart on how to be sent 
is do what Jesus said. He said, pray for the laborers. The laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. And so what you do is you start praying for these laborers of the harvest, and you realize in your prayers, which is a very dangerous prayer, that Jesus is going to answer it through you. And your heart becomes like his heart, which that's what prayer is supposed to do. That's what scripture reading. We become more and more in tune with what God's heart is for the world. And then we just want to go. We want to go. We want to walk across the street and invite our neighbor. We want to go to the mailbox and make sure our, our neighbor who we always meet there knows that Jesus loves them. So, you know, those are the sort of the practical implications of this text as well. Yeah, we, we always want to be studying God's word, not only to be receivers of it, but to be able to know it, to be able to pass it on. So Paul makes a really clear point in Romans chapter 10. He says, how will they, how is the world going to know? How, how will they, who have never called on them, come to believe? And how are they to believe in him, Jesus, whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or sharing the good news, as Peter did with Cornelius or Philip did with uh, the Ethiopian? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so that's, that's why we even have a ministry here at Calvary called Sent. Yeah, where we live, work, and play. Yeah, it's, it's just we, to get your mind around that God has sent you. As, as he was sent into the world for you, now he has sent you into the world as ambassadors of ministry, or of, of messengers and ministers of reconciliation to the places where you work, where you live, the communities that you play in with this message. But that we carry it to the people who are seeking out God based on the initiating work of, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Totally. So this week at Calvary, if you're you're walking to your kitchen sink, we all have that sponge that smells a little off-putting, right, you know, we, at the kitchen sink. And it's a great reminder that in order for a sponge to remain healthy, it must soak in water and it must release water. And if it just soaks in, it becomes nasty, old, and is thrown and is no use, right? Yes. It's exactly with our faith. We are not only just to receive, 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 and sit on the sidelines and never be spent, but to continually receive and then release what we've been given in the world. That's a good, that's a good picture of that. So Peter is sent because that's what gospel people do. They're that's, always sent. That's gospel right. Gospel comes. That's what gospel people do. That's a Big statement right there. And Cornelius is responding to the light that he has, but Peter is sent with a message that brings clarity, and actually it's the message that will bring his household, him as well, salvation. Yeah, so that's the, the question we got this week is like, what's the, what's the parallel between salvation and baptism? Because we saw it in the text in the Ethiopian. Now we're seeing it in the text. Actually, we saw it in chapter 9 too with Saul and Paul's, Paul's conversion. Now we're seeing it in chapter 10. So how would you explain sort of the parallels that we see of salvation and, and immediately almost these individuals becoming back, getting baptized? Well, what, what we see is, you know, the, the faith is what saves us. It right. is the repentance, the, the turning away from our self-guided, godded lives and turning over to the Lord. Right. And then the Lord saves us because of grace alone. Yeah. And then the first act of obedience to say that, yes, this faith that I'm putting in Jesus is true, is really mine. The first act of obedience is baptism. And so we see, you know, with Philip, the Ethiopian asking, here's water, can here's I water. get baptized? Yeah. Does anything keep me from being baptized? And 
that the part of that question is, is there anything else I need to do to be in the family of God? So baptism is baptismo, to be immersed into. So you're immersed into the family of God. Are there any other regulations that I need to do that are required of me to be immersed into the family of God? And that's a big question, especially here in Acts 10, as we saw, because there were fellow Jews that came with Peter. And their answer, some of them might have been, yes. Yes, there are, you need to. There are some things, actually. You're Before right. you're baptized and brought in the family of God, you have to, one of them, you have to be circumcised because that's part of the Jewish faith. But the answer that they give here is actually, no, nothing keeps you. Like Your next step of obedience yeah. after putting your faith in Christ is to be baptized. So in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? I mean, Peter's asking, does anyone have an objection to what's about to happen, why they shouldn't be baptized and immerse into the family of God? Now, when I first read that as a good evangelical, can anyone withhold baptism from baptizing these people, or what keeps these people from being baptized? In my mind, I thought, well, you know, just just a quick baptism class. Right, totally. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So, so, you know, we, I think when we do our membership class and we say, what is baptism and teach through it, then we say, who should be baptized? It's all those who have put their faith in Christ. When should they be baptized? Immediately. Immediately. They should be baptized immediately. Yeah, and so if you are offering someone the gospel and they respond, you're more than capable of baptizing those individuals. You don't have to wait on the trained professionals to go through the class to, be, to baptize someone. Yeah, I mean, when we do a class, it's simply to, because we're often meeting individuals, to see that the saving faith they have in Christ um, is evidenced by their life. That They're just showing us right. that, yes, I put my faith in Christ, and this is what I believe, and I believe this about Jesus, and I see that God's working in my life. We say, absolutely, we're affirming that in our commitment to baptize you. Right, and we say around Calvary, and this is Tom saying, it's an inward... It's an outward our, expression. Outward expression of an inward reality. Yes. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, and that's, that's what baptism is, and sort of that's the parallel we see in Acts of the salvation stories and then their their first step of obedience, baptism. Yep, and they're doing just what Jesus told them. Go go and baptize people. Teach, go make disciples. Make disciples. And teach them to obey everything they've commanded and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we see them being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, verse 48. Uh, this, they're na- being baptized in the name of their Savior. They're coming to faith in Christ. Oh, man. So, okay, well, this was a great story. What's next uh, next week? How are we going to prepare our hearts, our ears, our minds to receive what's next this Sunday? So, the, remember, the story of Acts is the story of the early church, what God was doing through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit as it crosses from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world, as it crosses the tracks and nations and people. And one of the questions that also came in this week was, okay, it's great that we see Philip and Peter responding to people who are God-fearers. I mean, tee it up for you, especially with Philip. I mean, here's the Ethiopian just reading the Bible. Right. And then you have God himself coming and saying, you need to go over and see Cornelius. But my world often uh, exists with people that don't know their Bibles and really aren't oriented towards God. So what do I do with a person that does not know their Bible and does not have a fear of God? Well, that's going to be the next story this Sunday is how does the gospel come to people unexpectedly 
before uh, they knew their Bibles. And so, how do you begin that conversation? So what chapter should we be reading in Acts? You want to be in Acts chapter 14 with Paul and Barnabas as they are getting kind of beat up, yeah. but continue to be courageous by sharing the gospel. Man, it's so good to be with you this week. What a great conversation. I'm just, once again, I'm just blown away of how relevant the scriptures are today, how relevant they're to my own life, my own heart, and the challenge we all have as we read these texts, right? That's right. All right, Calvary, we love you. We're so thankful for you. Uh, even though we can't be together, let us know that you're there by writing into the weekly at the weekly at calvarybible.com. That goes directly to myself and Thomas, and we would love to get your questions, your feedbacks over these these messages. We want the conversation to continue. We want to know what you're wrestling with, how God's moving in your world, and how best to clear up some of these steps that we all have, These all these confusions we all have in our life, and better just to love and respond to God. Have a great week.